Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I am just so delighted you're joining me here in my kitchen, and I can't wait for you to meet today's guest, Vicki Robin, who is the author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth. So without delay, welcome to Kitchen Chat, Vicki. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for having me in your kitchen. Oh, this is great. And listeners, um, I'm going to post something on the website uh, where you can link to enter a chance to win Vicki's wonderful new book. And you'll definitely want to get a copy after hearing her incredible journey and decision to, for one month, to eat closer to home, to, to make it a sustainable effort. And, and what we can all learn from that, along with some great recipes. <laughs> so, so Vicki, this is just an amazing journey you had. And, and I love how in your book, you, you truly bring it back to home and, and how you share your own food story and you encourage uh, everyone to write down their own food story. Could you just um, touch briefly on that? Yeah, it's, it's, we don't realize. So briefly, the experiment was I decided to eat exclusively for one month food uh, grown within 10 miles of my home. And in part, I'm, I'm concerned about the sustainability of our global food system. I'm concerned about the diet-related diseases. I'm concerned about how much fossil fuel is used in the production of our food, and which is a non-renewable resource. You know, there's so many reasons why people are starting to turn to the idea of local food. And I wanted to test the viability of that idea. Is that something that you just sort of go to the farmer's market and buy three beets and think you're doing it? Or is it something that we can really chew on? You know, we could live from that. So that's why I did a total local food diet with a couple of exceptions. I had oil, salt, and um, caffeine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I kept those because they didn't want to do local suffering diet. I want to do a local food diet. <laughs> right. uh, and um, so what I found was, number one, I have been a lifelong dieter. You know, you lose weight and gain it back and a little bit more and lose that and gain it back and a little bit more. So that's been my story. I've tried, you know, all the different you know, weight loss diets from South Beach to Zone to Atkins to, you know, now the new one is Paleo. But I've also, you know, I've also tuned into the the ethics based and the nutrition, you know, the nutrition dictates, you know, everything from total vegan, you know, you shouldn't eat any animal products, to uh, there's at the other end of the scale, there's a type of diet where they believe that you should eat lots of meat and lots of fat and lots of organs that that makes you healthier and they have a lot of claims for that so you know i realized my my whole what i put in my mouth was not governed by any sense of taste or body sense of appetite it was totally governed by trying to conform to looking good in the culture, you know. I mean, right. it was okay when I was growing up. Marilyn Monroe and I were not that far apart, but, you know, you get to Twiggy or, you know, the current models, <laughs> and it's really hard. Right. So I was always...
always eating according to somebody else's latest and greatest new idea. And uh, for me, local food is like, no, you're, you're eating according to the seasons, according to the soils, according to the climate, according to the local prosperity of your farmers. You're eating. It's a whole different ethic. Yeah. Uh, so, and I will and say, you know, just briefly that um, I lost a few pounds because I, you know, it was challenging to get, you know, and I, I stopped overeating. That's an amazing thing. I don't ever eat anymore. And my weight is stabilized pretty much. You know, I've become one of those people who year in, year out, they're the same size. Mm-hmm. And so that was a miracle. But also, the hunt for food became a hunt for friends because the farmers really became my friends. Yes, and, and it all comes down to community. It sounds it like just does. reaching out, and the kitchen really connects everyone. And what I love too um, is you're talking about tell your food stories and weave these memories into the story of your life. Not only is this um, kind of your own personal journey, but you make it interactive for the readers and listeners. You'll love this. I never thought about making a food timeline, draw a line with one end of your birth and the other today and and divide it into years or decades or life seasons and write memories along the timeline, like mom's grilled well, I put that in the book. Yes. Yeah, I put that in the book because I found that when I told people I was doing a local food diet, instantly people started telling me the tro- stories of their childhood. Mm. That, you know, and, and, oh, my grandma, who's 101 now, had a kitchen garden and those tomatoes were great. Or my mother always made me milk toast when I was sick or, you know, it didn't matter. People were telling stories of a more wholesome diet and more connected diet, you know, not just, um, you know, the food you eat, but the context you eat it in your family, growing up, your holidays and celebrations. And so we actually belong to a food culture that we have from childhood, we have so many happy memories of. Unless, you know, unless it was a really deprived. But even then, you know, people say, I love my mother's collards, you know, or whatever (laughs) mother could put on the table for her kids because mothers want to feed their kids well. Yes. Yes. And for those who are um, culinarily challenged, I guess, to coin a phrase like myself, I'm just, you know, I'm not a great home chef. I love how you're so encouraging in this book, Vicki, where you say, now it's your turn, you know, and, and you give away, you know, in terms of sourcing local ingredients and everything. And you say, develop your signature soup just to start with a simple dish. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you buy... Even if you just buy at the farmer's market on Saturday, by Wednesday, you have odds and sods in the fridge of of vegetables. And so I, every week, pretty much, I'll make a soup out of whatever is um, in my fridge and um, I want to incorporate into something. And I've found there's certain spices, and now I'm not on a hyper-local diet, so I use spices from around the world. There's certain herbs and spices I love. So when I serve my soups to other people, they go, oh, what's in this? I love cumin and coriander, fennel, and I found I was mowing a weed in my yard and it turned out to be oregano. So oh. I have oregano, and this last year I grew a lot of basil because I love it and I was successful. And so I'll put fresh herbs. I have thyme growing in my deck. So I'll put fresh herbs in, and I either I will have bought a local or organic chicken, and make stock, or I'll just buy some chicken stock. 
and maybe put in some, I, I actually, we have on my island where I live in Puget Sound, there is a very fertile area of the island where they grow a lot of field beans, and there's a special kind of bean that we grow there called the Rockwell bean, which is a very sort of creamy, meaty bean, so I'll often soak Rockwell beans for a couple of days. You know, you soak your beans, and they're easier to digest, and they're quicker to cook, so I'll soak them for a couple of days and put some beans in my soup. There's also, also local grain that's cooked, uh, is grown there, so I might put some local barley in there, also soak it and sprout it a little bit, and um, and man, it's good. And then, you know, if I can't get through it all before my next farmer's market, then I'll just put it in the freezer. So I'm on the road now speaking to people about my book, but when I go home, I have soup in my freezer and oh. I take that out. That is great, and I love what you also include the recipes um, that accompany the soup with kale chips, and you said it, you know, it's so easy and fun to have around, and you specifically write about your favorite kale, and I, pardon me if I'm mispronouncing it, lacinato? La- right, the lacinato, the dinosaur kale, sometimes it's called dinosaur oh. kale, because I don't know if you've ever seen kale growing, there's a variety of kales. And that's something else just to know about our food system is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of different kinds of vegetables, but it's been boiled down to the ones, you know, that are available in the supermarket. Maybe there's 35 different kinds of fruits and vegetables in the supermarket that have been chosen as the ones that, you know, ship well or store well or appear good. And so there's lots of different kinds of kale. And so if you had one kind of kale and you didn't like it, you can try another so there's Russian kale and curly kale, and this lacinato kale is a very, um, um, it's like a leathery leaf, hmm. and so it holds its structure well. So when you chop it up in you know big pieces and dehydrate it with some spices on it and maybe some soy sauce, then you get a product that that actually holds its, you know, shape. I actually during my month I. I had no wheat in my 10 miles, so I had no cookies, no crackers, you know, <laughs> and somebody told me I could dehydrate zucchini. Wow. So I did. I would, you know, put zucchini rounds maybe a quarter of an inch uh, in my dehydrator, and they turned, you know, they turned crispy after a while, and um, so I called them zackers, zucchini crackers, and when I put a little local honey on, I have a zucchini. Yeah. Now that now I have access to wheat and I have access to crackers and cookies and things like that. So right. I don't make zackers and cookies that often. Right. But it was an adaptation. It yes. was something an experiment. you know, it, because because we all have our favorite flavors, favorite yeah. textures. And if you can't if you set a limit then you have to get creative. If you can't have what you always eat at right. you know, a certain hour of day, then you figure out what you can have and you learn to cook. Exactly. And and Vicky, I'm looking out the window from my kitchen because I broadcast in my kitchen and I see snow-covered Chicago land. How do I find something local to eat when everything looks absolutely frozen? <laughs> what can those of us in the colder uh, areas do during this time of year if we do want to try the um, eat local diet? So I would like to point out that 100 years ago or 200 years ago in Chicago, there were people there who ate locally. 
Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it's not impossible. We've just lost our local food systems because mm. of refrigeration and transportation and all the miracles of flying in blueberries from Chile and stuff like that. Mm. So, number one, just to recognize that there are foods that, that have been adapted to our regions, and when people settled there, they did that. Now, what did they do in the winter? They had root crops. They stored their potatoes and carrots and and, uh, and then bulbs, onions, and turnips and rutabagas and beets. That was like your food stores. And when you, you know, peel those, uh, cut them in chunks, put a little olive oil and a little salt on it and put it in the oven, you bring out the sweetness in those those vegetables. And it's delicious and nutritious. And then also I mentioned... Uh, the field beans, you know, the, yeah. the beans and grains are naturally stored food, and so you can eat that in the winter. Also, squash, I mean, the squash is designed with a, especially winter squash, you know, summer squash has thin skin, winter squash has a thick skin, so that that will last over the winter, and by the end of the winter, it will it will have rotted to the point where it yields its seeds, so... A squash, add squash to your soup or add squash to your um, roast. Also, if we didn't just have farmer's markets, but we had real local food systems, like imagine you had, you know, a Midwest, a regional, imagine you took a, put a pin where you are and you took a string that represented 500 miles and drew a circle around Chicago. You would look at, you would see a very, very big food area. Yeah, And so um, what would happen if we had a real food system would be that we wouldn't just be eating the summer crops. We would be storing food. Uh, you know, they would be legal. I mean, a lot commercial kitchens are required for, you know, three stainless steel sinks. Right. But you know full well that you can produce a really good product in your kitchen. Yeah. So you would be doing jams and jellies and chutneys and you would be storing all that food for... The winter, and you might even take some meats and and and, and uh, can them, or you would like dry them, or you put them in the freezer. So, so there have... are ways. You're right. There are ways that even though many of the listeners are in, looking out at frozen tundras <laughs> right now, there are ways to source locally. And your book is an inspiration to provide ideas that we never thought about. And I'm going to try to come up with my signature soup. And listeners, please let me know your thoughts on what your signature soup might be. And I'm going to put a link to Vicki's website, VickiRobin.com, and um, provide a chance, listeners, for you to read a copy of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us. Vicki, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your journey. I know you're busy with all the interviews today, but thank you for taking the time to be on Kitchen Chat. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. And listeners, remember to take a moment today and savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pearl Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you. So join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.